Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. This is season two, episode four. Today I'm speaking with Victoria Slynn Floor, who has been a journalist, writer, artist, and someone who I consider a dear friend. A fellow member of the Pagan Alliance in San Francisco, she's also taught media relations for Cherry Hill Pagan Seminary and has lectured on paganism at Mount Diablo Community College and the Pacific School of Religion of the Graduate Theological Union at the University of California, Berkeley. I always enjoy my talks with Victoria, and I really wanted to give her a chance to talk about her life and her experiences as a pagan. I take you now to my conversation with my friend, Victoria Slenflor. Welcome to the Calling the Quarters podcast. I'm your host, Dean Jones. Today, I'm speaking with writer Victoria Slenflor, who has been a journalist since the early 1970s. In the course of her career, she has worked for the Bellevue American, now the Eastside Journal, the West Bank Guide, New Orleans Business, and the Los Angeles Daily Journal. The Recorder, National Law Journal, American Lawyer, Intellectual Property Law and Business, the American Bar Association Journal, Intellectual Assets Management Magazine, Quilt Folk, and the Electronic Business News Service, Bloomberg News. She has taught media relations for Cherry Hill Pagan Seminary and has lectured on paganism at Mount Diablo Community College in the Pacific School of Religion of the Graduate Theological Union of the University of California, Berkeley. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I want to um, begin by talking a little bit about where you're from and where you live now. Well, I am actually living in the very county where I was born. Um, I was born here in Alameda County in California because my dad was stationed at Treasure Island, uh, which was a naval base during World War II. And um, my family does come from the Pacific Northwest. So as soon as dad got out of the Navy, we hide ourselves back north and I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, through a kind of complicated series of moves and job opportunities, I ended up here in the Bay Area in the mid 80s and I've been here ever since. But it's just pretty ironic <clears throat> that I ended up right where I started out. Yeah, that's kind of mid full circle. Sure. Now, what kind of religious practices were you raised with growing up? Well, this is going to be a longer story than you might want, Dean. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, my family, it was really kind of split right down the middle on some levels. Um, there's a very famous book about immigrants called uh, Giants in the Earth, about Norwegian immigrants. It's set, I think, in the Dakotas by A.A. A. Rovag. And uh, it's um, a multi-volume multi uh, series, actually. And one of the volumes in the series is called Pater Victorious. And when I read Pater Victorious, I was just left breathless and in tears at the same time, because it was a story of my family. It was a story about um, very pietistic religious dissenters who were evangelical Lutherans who basically came to the New World, certainly for economic opportunity, but also to escape the iron grip of the evangelical Lutheran Church in Norway, and who came right up against Roman Catholicism. And my, my mother's family um, are very, very hardcore Roman Catholics. Um, so much so that some of my ancestors were actually recruited from California to move up into the Oregon territories at a time when the bishops were afraid that there were too many Protestant missionaries going into the Oregon territories um, who would convert the Indians and basically establish Protestantism as the dominant religion. So they set about to recruit Catholics to go up there to dilute the presence. So um, the very first mass that was said in central Washington state was said by a, an Italian Jesuit missionary in my great great grandparents house. And ever since then, my family has been on my mother's side, very, very devoted to Catholicism. Um, and I'm a product of that environment with um, 12 years of convent school, four years of a Catholic university, and then many years of commitment to life in my Catholic parish. But at the same time, the subtext was that my father had come from this pietistic evangelical sect um, for whom the Reformation was real and who were really fearful about what they considered really pagan practices of Catholicism. 
Meanwhile, on my mother's side, my mother's sole goal in life was to convert my father to Catholicism. So there was always this dynamic tension going on in the house and religion became probably the most important thing and a very hot button in the house when I was growing up. Um, and I was the classic good Catholic girl who went through 12 years of convent school and loved it, loved my teachers. And even now, people like to talk about the evil nuns whacking people up across the hands with rulers, and I won't stand for any of it because my teachers were the first feminists I ever knew. They were highly educated women. They provided me a safe place. Um, a play They valued me as a human being, and they opened up all kinds of doors for me. So I would never, ever be a nun basher. Um, there, are, there are many other factors about the church to, that caused me to vote with my feet and be elsewhere, but not ever the nuns. But anyway, I grew up in a very intensely religious household that was full of all kinds of tension, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So where did you first start learning about the goddess religion and witchcraft? <laughs> well, I, I think as is the case with many pagans, it's something that I always kind of knew. Um, although I was a good Catholic girl and went through every possible step, including having the full court press nuptial mass with the papal blessing when I got married, there was a part of me that never really kind of committed to it emotionally. Um, but when I was in nature, that was something else. That was always something else from my earliest childhood. I can remember as a really small child being in the woods with my brother under the the cedar trees and the Douglas fir trees in the Pacific Northwest, the big cedar nurse logs with the red huckleberries growing out of the logs and the blackberries underneath and the tiny flowers that were growing there and knowing that this was a holy place. And this was a holier place than the tabernacle with the sanctuary lamp that was flickering when I walked into church. Um, when I was a little girl, I didn't really play with dolls the way girls play with baby dolls, but there was a kind of doll that people gave to children then, little girls then called storybook dolls. And they were little dolls, only about seven or eight, maybe nine inches tall, not at all like Barbie dolls. And they um, were always dressed in costumes that represented people from various fairy stories or folk tales. And I used to take these dolls out and arrange them underneath a maple tree on a bank that was pretty much encrusted with with beautiful velvety green moss. And I just like to lay them out there in this beautiful array in nature. And I, I think years later that those were my goddesses. I just didn't know it at the time. But I knew that that I was celebrating something that was transcendent and different and that it wasn't what we got at school. But on the other hand, I always tell people one of the reasons that so many of us who are pagans have come from Rome is that we totally get the idea of the goddess. I mean, we grew up with Mary for heaven's sakes, and we also really know how to do ritual. I mean, I, I can do really good ritual. And part of it is I had so many years of theology and learned how to be a good liturgist when I was in a Catholic university. And the third reason, of course, is that for many of us, we have had it with the patriarchy. We are just fed to the teeth with the patriarchy. And certainly the recent scandals within the church have done nothing but to fuel that whole thing, as well as the, the visitations that Pope Benedict inflicted upon the sisters. He sent a, a basically uh, visitors to the United States to inspect the various communities of sisters because they weren't being nunny enough. They were out doing social justice work. And it just enraged Catholic women because these women were out there doing what we wanted them to do, what they needed to do, what, what, their, what the commitment to the values we were raised with caused them to do. So um, those three things pushed, I think, a lot of us over into paganism or at least away from Rome without our really realizing that it was happening, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what, what point in your life did you have the aha moment where you realized you were a witch? Oh, goodness. Um, I'm going to blame that on the Mormons. 
Um, I had to go to, uh, uh, I've been a legal journalist for much of my career, as you know, and I had to go to a judicial conference, uh, which was a very big deal where all the, the judges and public defenders and, um, uh, U.S. attorneys in the Western states gathered together for an annual meeting. And one of the public defenders pulled me aside and said, um, what do you know about blood atonement? And I thought, oh, dear Jesus, is this somebody who's going to ask me if I've been washed in the blood of the lamb? Is it going to be one of these big, you know, evangelical Christian deals? And so I kind of hemmed and hawed and pulled back. Well, as it turned out, this person had some very real concerns about the theology of the, of the Mormon church that basically holds that there are some sins that are so terrible that they can only be forgiven if blood is spilled. And this particular public defender said, I'm afraid that some of my guys who are working for me are not being as zealous as they should be in defending some of the accused because just maybe their commitment to blood atonement trumps their commitment to providing justice for their clients. So this is a big deal. And I went to my editors and told my editors, my editors said, well, you know, get your butt to um, Salt Lake City as soon as possible. So I went to Salt Lake City and I ended up getting a pretty good story about it, although it wasn't exactly the big breaking scandal that I had hoped it would be, but it was a pretty good story. And in the process, I talked to a lot of dissidents who were really distressed at how women were treated within the context of that church. And I sat through the church's general conference, which happens twice a year when everybody gathered in what was then the Mormon tabernacle. Now they use a different building, but the Mormon tabernacle. And, oh God, it was the most boring couple of days I've ever spent in my life. Uh, All these old white guys in business suits sitting up there on the stage, um, basically talking about building temples. And when the women had a chance to speak, it was only kind of with the male permission. And they were all just incredibly contained and it felt to me repressed. And I had learned that some of the women who were not present there had been excommunicated because they were trying to find a role for women in the church. Um, uh, the Mormons all the time talk about, about God the Father, but they don't talk about any kind of female divine presence. And people who, women who began to question where the women belonged certainly were shown the door. So on the way home, I thought I'd stop at a fabric store and buy some fabric because I'm a quilter. And I went into what I thought was a fabric store. And instead, it was a place where Mormon women sold their crafts. Only the crafts were all out of kits. I found um, like little pre-printed pieces of wood on which you would you would uh, wood burn over the lines. And the lines that were pre-printed there were either portraits of the prophets, which were a bunch of old white guys in business suits, or else Mormon mottos like choose the right or families are forever. Uh, and you could actually um, make filet crochet portraits of all the various temples or even of Joseph Smith. And I thought, man, this is just busy work to keep these women's hands busy so that they don't start asking questions. So I got on the plane and I flew home to Oakland. And I remember as I landed in Oakland, looking out at the Oakland Hills, and this was um, actually in mid-October and the hills were of course very brown and dry and I thought man I just feel like the heel of the hand of the patriarchy is squishing me down into the earth I just feel so suppressed so I want to be somewhere where there aren't any patriarchs and I knew there was a feminist bookstore in Oakland and I thought well patriarchs patriarchs aren't going to be hanging out there so I went to the bookstore which was kind of a weird place for somebody as from as conventional background as I had and looked around and wasn't terribly comfortable. But I saw this notice on the bulletin board for something that I called the spiral dance at Samhain for women. Um, and I, that's how I pronounced the word actually Samhain back then. And I thought, well, there aren't going to be any patriarchs at this deal. So why don't you show up and go to this deal? So the, when the, Time rolled around. I actually got in my car and drove out to the Masonic temple where this event was to be held, sat out in the parking lot and thought, oh God, who are these weird women? There were all these women in long velvety dresses with shawls and too much drippy jewelry and 
long hair and somebody was waving this smoking thing around them and somebody else was splashing them with water and I thought, oh, this is just tacky. But then I remembered sitting in the Mormon tabernacle with all those people and thought, nope, nope, you really got to go check this out. So I walked in, I got splashed with water and the smoking thing got waved around me. And there was a tinsel curtain that was in purple, green and gold tinsel. And I thought, this is somebody's leftover from Mardi Gras. These people are just too tacky for words. But I parted (laughs) the curtain and walked into this Masonic temple. And there at the other end of the room was an altar. And the altar, which was probably, you know, like one of those foldable uh, tables that you can get at places like Office Depot, had a life-size soft sculpture of a squatting woman holding a baby. And from under the mother's skirt was a big red cord. And the red cord went to the other end of the table and there was a second squatting figure of a crone. Only I didn't even know the word crone then. I just saw grandmother. And I went, oh. Oh, this is the first time in my life I have ever seen anything that has anything to do with my life held up as sacred. This is amazing. So I stayed. And I will admit there were moments in the evening that were really kind of uncomfortable for me. I didn't know the songs and we were expected to dance through part of it. And of course, you know, with my crappy knees, I can't dance very well. But there were some really interesting and beautiful things too. There was a woman who was a belly dancer who danced bare breasted holding this big, beautiful albino boa aloft. And I thought, my God, she looks like the Minoan snake priestesses. And then there was another woman who came in in a white kimono with a wooden mask, like something out of no theater. And at one point they called all the women who were past menopause age into the middle of the circle and everybody else circled around and started singing to them coming up and touching their feet and thanking them for what they had contributed. And I went, oh, because my experience as an aging woman was that we are invisible and despised. And here we were honored, we were the center. And then at the very end, we danced a spiral dance, which I'd never seen before. And as you know, when the spiral dance progresses, you look in the face of each person who passes in front of you. And at the end, you end up in a very tight circle, usually with a long extended chant. And I remember looking up at the ceiling where I could see the reflection of all our hands that were raised up. And all of a sudden I got it. This is why they burned us at the stake. This is why they are so afraid of us. This is who we are. This is the power that we have. Um, One of the big slogans of second wave feminism for me was sisterhood is powerful. And this was the first time I ever really, really saw it. And I went, I am one of those. Those are my people. So that was it. That was the moment. How, how did this, I mean, this seemed like to be, be a very palpable, like shifted life. How did it change your life kind of as a whole? Well, there's kind of a different way to think about this, I guess, which is that for me, the essence of being a pagan is to be awake. Yeah. And I think I woke up. Um, I've always loved nature, you know, and I've been, I've been a backpacker and a hiker and a camper and a gardener all my life. But all of a sudden I realized this is where I have to be. This is what speaks to me. Um, the actions that I perform when I'm out in nature, they're sacred acts. And then, um, I read a book by Sabina Malyoko, who is a professor up at the University of British Columbia on, uh, basically pagan material culture. And, um, she had some photos in it of some cool stuff that pagans have made. And, you know, I always make cool stuff. I like to make cool stuff. And all of a sudden I realized this is what I do. This is exactly what I do, that I'm not just making a quilt. I'm not just fooling around with some clay, you know. I'm I'm not just messing around with beads or paper or whatever it is. I am coexisting, co-creating with the goddess. The goddess is a constantly changing creatrix. 
and she has invited me to participate in that process that is not a static process so um i always tell people my spirit my my spiritual supply stores are fabric stores and home depot uh i you know i don't i don't want to go buy some crap that somebody's made in china and set on the shelf with some kind of a allegedly pagan theme if i can make my own stuff and so I realized the making of the making of beautiful things, even if they're crude and clumsy and I can classify them only as folk art. That's my witchy power. That's one of my best witchy powers. So I'm not so much into doing a lot of really fancy spells or divination as much as that I am to taking the creative power that's in my hands, my brain and my heart and putting it on a computer keyboard or making something appear in fabric or in clay or come out of my oven or grow in my garden. Those are the places where I'm a witch, if that makes sense. Yeah. Were there any um, authors that inspired you early on that you were reading um, that really kind of resonated with you? Not a lot of pagan writers, to be honest. Um, I think probably the writers who've inspired me the most have been, um, oh, probably um, Teilhard de Jardin, who was a Jesuit paleontologist. Um, Pierre Teilhard talked about how the world is charged with the grandeur of God and how I can hear the universe singing. Um, and Dean, you know, you and I know uh, a, a Druid who is no longer with us who used to say, well, when I first became a Druid, I kept thinking about the ancient gods. And then I thought about the whole pantheon of gods. I thought that was what was sacred. And then I thought, no, maybe it's the animals that I think are sacred. No, maybe it's the earth itself that's sacred. And finally, he hit upon it. It's the atomic particle, the subatomic particle that's sacred. And I get that. And I got that from Pierre Teilhard, Teilhard de Chardin. It, the universe is singing the vibration of all those atomic particles as they come together that make everything that we that we are that we that is tangible for us in this world all of those things are sacred and wonderful and speaking and singing to us so i would say that that would be one of the big influences of mine another one would be god i hate to keep turning to jesuits all the time but that's okay uh, Hopkins, Hopkins, the poet, um, who saw the dearest green deep down things. Um, and his, his poetry, Pie, Pie Beauty, celebrates just this glorious nature that we're, in which we're, we're embedded. Uh, and he saw everything, you know, the shape of the clouds in the skies, the rose moles all in stipple on a trout's belly. All of those things sang to him. So, you know, a lot of the conventional pagan writers, I look at them and the first thing I do is I look in the back of the book and look at the bibliography and go, oh, come on, you're making this up at the top of your head, dude. Um, this is all wishful thinking. This is unverifiable personal gnosis, as we like to dismiss it. Um, there, there are a few people who I do respect, and one of them is the late Margot Adler, who right. was to me a, a very wonderful and a scholarly writer, and also one of my professional colleagues. We often ended up covering the same stories together as journalists. Um, and she did the work. But I think a lot of people don't do the work, and I see so many pagan titles that are just regurgitations of other people's regurgitations. So um, you're not going to get a list of favorite pagan writers from me, honestly. That's okay. That's okay. I want to um, switch gears a little bit and going to something um, a little different. I want to ask you, have you ever faced any adversity uh, since you took up pagan path for being a pagan? That's a difficult question. Um, I, yeah. I, I think not in my profession. And if it's, if, if you don't have to answer it if you don't want no, no, no. I, I think I can answer it this way. Not in my professional life at all. In fact, my editors yeah. over the years have been incredibly enlightened and wonderful. Um, I remember when I went to work 
at, um, was it Bloomberg or the National Law Journal? Uh, anyway, one of my editors said to me, which holidays do you need off? Um, okay, that's cool, whatever you need off. Um, and I think that largely because of my age, my educational background, my professional background, they all thought it was kind of cool that there was this older person with gray hair who was a pagan and a witch. Come on, that was kind of cool. I remember when I started working for Bloomberg, I was in the elevator and I was wearing my pentacle, which had a piece of amber in the middle of it, which I always wear. And I get in the elevator and somebody does a double take and looks at me and goes, well, Mary meet. <laughs> and I thought, okay, we're everywhere. We really are everywhere. So that's not been a detriment at all. Um, with my family, it's been a little bit more complicated. Um, some of my children, I think, would really like me to be more conventional than I am and are bitter and resentful that I, my life is to them a detriment to their upward mobility, if that makes any sense. And, yeah. you know, being old and disabled and having a low income and being pagan on top of it and then being an AIDS widow, dear God, you know, it's just, those are not things that you want to do if you want to rise up into the country club status sphere to which I feel like they're aimed. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. Who are some of the, sorry, I'm going to edit that part out. Um, can you talk about your first explorations into pagan groups, uh, starting to discover uh, different groups, uh, you know, in the places that you've lived? Okay. Um, as I think I told you, I came to paganism because I was so fed up with the patriarchy. And so I knew that I did not want to be in yeah. any groups that had any men involved in it at all. Probably mainly because I was afraid that yeah. I had such a deeply ingrained habit, a deeply ingrained difference of deference to male authority in the religious context. And I felt that would be unhealthy for me to continue along that vein. So I very pointedly avoided any contact with men at all in any kind of a religious context. Um, and for the first couple of years, I was pretty happy in the group that the first group that I was in, but I felt that it was lacking a commitment to community service. It was really looking deeply with inward and maybe it's the ethos with which I was raised as a good Catholic girl, but it just seemed to me that that if we're going to exist in this world, we need to care for the world and we need to reach out to others in the world. So it felt kind of unsatisfying. And there were several times that I would come up with a really cool idea for a community service um, project and was told, no, 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 we're not going to do that. It's just all about us here. So um, eventually, a number of us left that particular group and formed a new coven that did have a, a bigger community service commitment. And we did then affiliate with the Pagan Alliance, um, which had a much bigger community service commitment. And that made me a whole lot happier because I didn't want to just be focused on ourselves for ourselves alone. Um, can I tell you the story about underpants? Please, yeah, I actually was going to honestly ask you that question because I know the story and I would like everybody to hear it. Okay. Well, in 2005, I was on my way. Um, I had actually done some teaching at a pagan conference up in Minnesota, and I had to do some interviews for my job at the University of Wisconsin and had to go to a family funeral in eastern Washington. So I was doing a, a lot of traveling with the ultimate goal that I would end up in New Orleans where I had an old boyfriend with whom I was hoping to reconnect for all sorts of reasons, including some that are downright lascivious. And um, I got as far as Vicksburg, Mississippi. And I really enjoyed the trip and seeing so much of the nation. But when I got to Vicksburg, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who had lived in New Orleans. He was a seventh generation New Orleanian who was now living up in Minnesota. And he said, don't go to New Orleans. 
there's a hurricane coming in. And I said, oh, Mark, come on. You know, I've lived through hurricanes in New Orleans. I lived through hurricanes in Florida. It's no big deal. He said, no, this is different. And I said, oh, no, Mark, come on. I can do this. He said, Victoria, I'm telling you, don't go to New Orleans. This is Hurricane Katrina, and this is going to be different. So after I got off the phone, I thought, you know, if Mark, who has ridden out countless hurricanes over the years, says, no, don't go to New Orleans, maybe I really better not. So I started looking at the weather reports, and it looked really ominous. And as a result, I thought, I better not do this. And I also realized that people were going to need to leave New Orleans and move up to Vicksburg, where I was, which is like two hours out of New Orleans. So I decided that I would go to Dallas and wait up in Dallas. So that's what I did. I got in the car and I drove furiously to Dallas with the beginnings of the hurricane beginning to kind of nip at my heels. And when I got to Dallas, I hunkered down in a hotel for four days and basically watched the city that I loved be destroyed on live television. And there were a lot of refugees from New Orleans who had made it up to that same hotel and were sitting in the breakfast room of the Hampton Inn there in Dallas, watching their own houses come down and be flooded and torn apart. But the thing that really tore me apart the most was watching them attempt to rescue some of the people who lived in the Ninth Ward. And a lot of them were people who were, had gone up into their attics as the water, flood waters rose and then taken hatchets and had to make holes in their roofs to get up on the roofs to be rescued by the helicopters. And it was hotter than hell. And they basically were stripped down to their underwear. And after three or four days in this terrible, hot, humid weather, in just bras and underpants, and a lot of them were honestly kind of big ladies, um, they got scooped up off the roofs in those baskets and taken up into the helicopters. And I thought, oh, this is so embarrassing to be a fat person and be sucked up there on national television with your butt hanging out the back of your underpants that are dingy and crappy looking because you've been wearing them for four days. This is just terrible. And in a couple of cases, the cables broke and these people fell to their death. And it just, oh dear God. It just made my heart hurt. So um, eventually I left Dallas and drove back home to San Francisco, the, the Bay Area, and it took me a few days, uh, probably almost a week because I wasn't going to have my pedal to the metal. And when I got home, there was an email from one of the fat lady stores where I buy my clothes. And the email said, we are desperate for large size clothing for the people that be women that are being evacuated from New Orleans. We have plenty of clothes, but we don't have large size clothes. Can you help us? And I thought, man, what would be the worst thing in the world would be to come out, you know, be on national TV in your dingy, crappy underpants and crappy bra and suddenly get to the rescue center and be told, well, we're sorry, but you're a fat lady and we don't have any clothes for you. And I thought the worst thing in the world is not to have clean underpants. So I sent out the word through the Pagan Alliance and through all the pagan groups that I knew that we needed to find big lady underpants. And basically, we bought out all the fat lady underpants that you could find in the East Bay. You know, we ended up with hundreds of pairs of underpants, all brand new. And because we're all different, you know, I opted for your basic cotton granny panties, but there were some black lace thongs, and there were some tiger skin <laughs> things, and there were some lacy things, and, and whatever blows your skirt up. Um, so we ended up with all these underpants coming to my house, and I thought... You know, we need to let these women who receive these know that these aren't just some random FEMA dump, that, that somebody actually went out and thought about you and cared about you and got these for you. And I'd like you to know that they were pagan, but then I was thinking, Baptist ladies, are they going to want underpants from witches? And then I realized, oh, of course, everybody in New Orleans knows Oshun. Oshun is one of the Yoruba deities uh, who is very much beloved in New Orleans even by some of those good Baptist ladies, because she's the river goddess. And of course, the river is sacred in New Orleans. And she's a goddess of personal adornment. So I thought this will be really cool. So we made these little yellow lab tags that said for you with love from the daughters of Oshun in San Francisco's Bay Area. And I got my little 
uh, it's a quilting tool that shoots little plastic things into something to hold two pieces together. And I use those to attach these little tags to all those underpants, put them in the great big box. And one of our members took it over to FedEx and she paid to have it all FedExed off to um, the Southland. Uh, well, we never heard anything back and that was okay. That was 100% okay because there was so much chaos in New Orleans at the time. The last thing in the world they would want to do is sit down and write, thank you for my new underpants. I'm sure they had much bigger things to do. So I was, I was just pleased because we were able to do it and we were able to do it without thinking, oh, somebody's going to think we are the, you know, the saints of all saints and they're going to, you know, give us some big humanitarian award or something. No, it, we just did it. And um, about a year later, I was over at uh, Holy Hill, over at the Graduate Theological Union at the University of California, and um, lecturing on paganism. And at the end of the lecture, somebody said to me, uh, tell me about your spiritual practice. And I thought, oh, crap, how do I explain this? You know, this, this, is, this is not the way that I can usually talk about my life as a pagan. So I said, well, let me tell you about underpants. And so I told <laughs> him the story about underpants. And afterward, uh, this young African-American woman came up to me and she said, you don't know everything about Oshun. And I thought, oh, crap, here we go. Cultural misappropriation. You know, after all, she is a beloved Yoruba deity. And here I am, this pink and white Norwegian American. Maybe I shouldn't have said anything. And so I started to kind of stammer around about, oh, well, I, you know, I really try, I, you know, tried to be respectful, blah, 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 blah. And she said, she laughed some more. And she said, no, what you forgot, Oshun is the goddess of generosity. And so I thought, well, okay, all right. That was cool. So that's that's my underpants story. And um, I actually wrote about it for one of the pagan publications and they did a really cool illustration, which I like so much that I traced and carved it into clay. So I have a plaque on my out in my garden that shows the goddess Oshun holding up a pair of lacy underpants. It's to me a very happy memento of this occasion. You mentioned uh, the Pagan Alliance, and I know you a lot, I think, originally from your work in the Pagan Alliance as a board member. Can you talk about um, the group of the Pagan Alliance and your work with them? Well, I just kind of fell into the Pagan Alliance, I guess, because of a few people that I knew. And I just immediately liked what the Pagan Alliance was doing. I loved the Pagan Festival that brought a lot of different groups together. And I liked the fact that the Pagan Alliance was really aimed at service, not only of the Pagan community itself, but of the larger community. Um, it just seemed like there were a lot of grown-ups involved in the Pagan Alliance. Um, and now I'm going to say something that may sound kind of, oh, it will sound critical. Paganism is the big tent religion of last resorts for a lot of people. And often the people who come to paganism are people who are broken, who've been so wounded, either by life in general or by the religious traditions in which they were raised or both. And often they are so debilitated, so wounded, so damaged. And they bring that to some of the pagan groups, which means that frequently we're dealing with people who have a lot of very serious underlying issues that may get in the way of a happy ritual, for example, or uh, a commitment to service. They, these are often people who are, have just really serious life needs. And I found that in the Pagan Alliance, there were a lot of people who have kind of done their work. Maybe they've, you know, they've done their therapy, they've got real jobs, they're, um, they've got real lives. Um, and they're reaching out hands to help other people. No question about that. So I really like the fact that here were some some grown-ups who could put on an event and have expectations that it would be successful, um, who could take care of the things that needed to be taken care of in terms of safety and responsibility and insurance and inclusiveness, uh, who put on rituals that were so excellent and i'm thinking of for example our druid friends ritual so excellent in terms of their inclusiveness 
everybody participated. Everybody had a joyful time. The ritual celebrated what we really needed to do. And um, the ritual that I'm thinking about, and I don't think you were there, Dean, was um, the larger pagan community had to advocate to get the pedicle, which is one of our symbols, included as an emblem of belief, belief on tombstones that were provided by vet for veterans. And it actually took a big court challenge through which we were uh, represented by the American Civil Liberties Union and Americans United for the separation of church and state. And we were ultimately successful. Well, as you know, in uh, Contra Costa County, there is a very large memorial to people who have died in the Iraq and Afghanistan conflict. And yes. each person who's died was marked with a wooden cross. And I thought after we had this uh, celebrated as an emblem of belief that we should go out and put some pinnacles out there. So I contacted the people behind that memorial and they said, come on down, please do this. So the Pagan Alliance basically helped pull together this ritual that we held out there. And it was absolutely wonderful. I loved this ritual. We had people from all branches of the military with flags and some of them with their uniforms. And we had a trumpeter and we had, of course, James the Druid in his full court dress, Druid, Druid garb. Um, and we did a fancy procession from the BART station up to the memorial. We cast a circle. We consecrated that ground. We put the pentacles in, in place on, I think, seven markers for named named people from our community that we had lost in those wars. And afterward, the people behind that memorial came up to us and said, this was never a sacred space until now. You have made it a sacred space. And I thought, well, this is just too cool for words. This is exactly what I would want to do. I would want us to be part of the larger community and the larger community look to us and say, hey, this is really cool. We didn't need to have some archbishop come and throw holy water out here. You know, you guys did it. Thank you. You've t taught, um, sorry, I'm gonna strike that. You've lectured about paganism at several uh, colleges in the Bay Area. Can you talk about this uh, time and what you talked about? Well, it's been different at different places. When I was at the community college, basically it was paganism 101 for people who had no knowledge of what we were or who maybe whose, whose knowledge was, you know, derived from I don't know, movies or something, you know, wanted, wanted me to come in and do some real witchy thing. And of course, I absolutely resisted that. And instead, yeah. you know, put diagrams on the blackboard and handed out a bibliography. <laughs> um, but at Holy Hill, when I was talking to people who were working on master's degree in theology, it was exactly the opposite approach. Um, I wanted them to understand that we were a religious tradition, a real, vibrant, living religious tradition. And I shared um, more information about what our actual practices are about rather than trying to be really dogmatic. Um, in both cases, I found respectful audiences, although at the community college, there were, I think, some young people who may have been from fundamentalist Christian backgrounds who sat there with their arms firmly folded, leaning way back away from me, um, <laughs> which is really funny when you think about it, because yeah. to look at me you know i'm a 79 year old grandmother with gray hair my hair in braids i walk with a cane i mean i look like everybody's grandma and i'm probably the least threatening witch you will ever see in your life in fact when we used to put on the pagan festival if i were sitting there in a chair with my witchy hat on i usually had little kids coming to crawl in my lap because they wanted to sit with the grandma witch mm -hmm. so um it's, it's, it just is different. It just depends um, on, on who my audience might be. Yeah. Now, before I ever met you, I knew about you through an article that talked about your artwork, uh, specifically your uh, clay sculptures. Um, like, I'd like for you to talk a bit about some of your artwork because um, I'm really enamored of it. Um, I find it very moving. Um, 
I love your sculpture, but I really would like to also have you talk about some of your quilt work as well. Um, so can we talk about that, uh, the different things you've been working on as projects, your sculpture and your quilting? Sure, sure. Um, I have to talk about my grandmother a little bit. Okay. Um, I just I just came across my grandmother's wedding portrait. She was um, married in uh, 1917. She was a, a highly educated woman for her time who was a, both a university graduate and a conservatory graduate. But I knew her as a baker of bread and a crocheter and a sewer and a gardener. And I remember her fat freckled arms and her big fat fingers with freckles on them plunging into the bow of bread dough and making flour and yeast and water and sugar into the most wonderful bread I've ever eaten in my life. Um, and I, I began to see that hands have power. Hands are magical. And I, I look at my hands and I have great big peasant hands with unfortunately fragile princess skin on them. But I love the work of my hands. And so it feels like for me, my calling is to make visible, to make manifest the ideas that are in my head, either by my fingers on the keyboard, honestly, or through clay, through fabric. Um, I ended up in a ceramics class for senior citizens over on the island of Alameda. And I just wanted to make goddess figures. Um, I just I, I just hate all the goddess sculptures that look like Llewellyn covers or comic book covers, you know, where you've got all these <laughs> yeah. sexy babes here with the thigh high boots and the slit up to here and the boobs out to there. <laughs> because that's not how I think of the goddess. That's right. not how I think of the creatrix who summons me, who bids me join in her creative power. And I see the various different goddesses as just manifestations of that same sacred feminine powerful energy. So I started playing with clay and I ended up doing a whole series of them. I, everybody from uh, Iduna with her apple um, to uh, Iris with her rainbow. I made one of Amaterasu in a kimono and she's made in such a way that the sunlight falls through her face and out through her eyes because she's a sun goddess, of course, when the sun is just right. And um, I made one of um, Persephone not as a babe, but as a snotty teenager, because that's how I think of Persephone. You know, I think of I think of Persephone as some kid who says to her mother, Persephone, oh, whatever. When when Demeter says, you know, don't go out of the yard. I'm, I want to protect you. Be careful. And Persephone kind of folds her arms and says whatever. And of course, gets herself into terrible trouble. So my Persephone is wearing a pleated skirt and a sweater and she's got untidy hair and she's glaring at her mother because that's what teenage girls do um and bit by bit these little terracotta figures would take form across my wall so i ended up calling them all coven terracotta now a couple of them have fallen off the wall and broken and i haven't got the right glue to put them back together again which makes me a little bit sad but maybe when i can find the right glue they can go back up there and then I moved to some Sheila Nagig figures. Um, those of you who may not have encountered Sheila Nagig, she's a figure that is found throughout the Celtic world. And um, basically it's a figure of a bald headed naked crone who reaches behind her knees and holds open her very much oversized vulva. Um, male scholars who looked at this figure went, Oh, well, that's a warming against concupiscence. See what happens if you if you do bad things, you know? Um, you know. So you should look at these figures and be abashed and go home and be virtuous. Every woman who's looked at them goes, ha, huh? are you kidding me? No, no, no. This is the great mother showing us the door through which we entered into the world. So that really spoke to me. And um, so I started making some figures um, of Sheila and the gig that are basically fabric appliques um, onto a fabric that is is quilted. And these are about the size, 
if you were a quilter, they're about the size of a fat quarter, which is about 20 by 22 inches. Um, and each shield in the gig that I've made represents some aspect of, I guess, the sacred feminine. Um, one of the things that really annoyed me about the Catholic Church when I started to think about it is that we celebrate, the Catholic Church celebrates the Feast of Candlemas, uh, also known as the Feast of the Purification of Mary on the 2nd of February. And this really pisses me off because basically it celebrates the time that Mary had to go to the temple and make an offering of, I forget, turtle doves, I think it was X number of turtle doves, that was a ritual of purification after her, the birth of her child. That's right, after giving birth to the Son of God, you gotta go in there and get purified. And I thought, what the heck, this is crazy. This is absolute insanity. Um, so I made a shield and a gig underneath a stained glass window with two candles on each side of her. And basically, Sheila is saying, why do we need to be purified? And I made her vulva out of a very rich and beautiful fabric, a silk fabric, so that you'd want to touch it. Because many of the Sheila Nagig figures that are carved in stone throughout the world have their vulvas completely worn down by people touching them. The way, you know, people would wear down the shoe of a saint in a statue when they would kiss the shoe of the saint. Well, it's the same thing. We know that's a sacred place and we want to touch it. And so each Sheila that I've made reflects my thinking about the sacredness of the great mother and how to interpret that. And some of them are frankly silly. One of the pieces actually is kind of a gloss on the um, tropical heat wave number that Marilyn Monroe did when she was in Some Like It Hot. And in one of the, one of the other pieces that I made, um, Sheila is manifesting herself in the parlor of the convent school I attended. And right next to Sheila is a portrait on the wall of Mother Mary Rose, who was the foundress of the Order of Sisters who taught me. And all the sisters are coming to Sheila Nagig and bringing her bouquets of roses. And I actually showed this to one of my former classmates who is a sister in this community, and she got it. She really got it. She got that what I was celebrating was that power of creativity that those sisters nurtured within me that is the same creative power of the goddess that we all possess. Um, and in, in another one, I have Sheila on the moon. You know, you and I, Dean, see the man on the moon. And right. Japanese people see the, a rabbit on the moon pounding rice to make omochi. But Polynesian people see the goddess Hina on the moon. And um, the goddess Hina is the goddess of art for the Polynesian people. She was the greatest artist in all of Polynesia because she could pound the bark into tapa cloth, which was used for sacred purposes. But apparently her husband was always saying, oh, come and, you know, sew some buttons on my sarong and, you know, make me some poi or whatever it is that husbands did in Polynesia. And she got fed up. So one day she just climbed up the rainbow bridge and went up to the moon where she could make her art undisturbed. And I kind of like that idea because that shows the sacredness of art making. So that's my Sheila who's on the moon. But there are many others, and there are probably some that I haven't even, there are some that I thought of that haven't even done, I haven't even done yet, but someday I will. I think I want nice. to do one about um, Sheila likes all, Sheila likes it that women can drive. And I'm going to have her on the, on the hood of a big Cadillac in Saudi Arabia with a bunch of Saudi women hanging out the sides of the cars. I like that. Me too. I'm not that good at drawing cars, but I think I'd like to do that one. Well, for the listeners, I, I've seen the work and I think it's just really magnificent. I'd love to see it in a museum. So hopefully that can happen. Well, the pieces that are really dearest to my heart right now, as you know, are the pedophilia series, which have nothing to do with paganism, except probably everything to do with paganism. Yeah, because... I was hoping you'd talk about that series. Well, um, I think like many people who grew up Catholic, I feel deeply, profoundly betrayed by what's happened in the church in terms of the conduct with children. And I think that people have talked about, written about, and tried to respond to the needs of the direct victims. 
but there are so many other people who've been so deeply affected by what has happened. It's really like tossing a pebble in the pond and the ripples go, the, the ripples go outward in all directions for multiple generations. Um, the damage that has been done is so great because we suddenly can see the evil, the sin of clericalism made so visible. And we can see how marginalized women are in the context of the church. And we can see that the efforts, the official church's efforts so largely have been to circle the wagons and protect the boys club at all costs. So I've been very, very, very angry. And even though I am, as they say, no longer in communion with Rome, Rome has left its fingerprints on me deeply in my psyche and in my heart. And so I decided that I would make a series of pieces celebrating the pedophile priests that I have known personally, and the list is too long. And every Catholic woman I know, or woman who's come from Catholic roots that I know, has an equally long list. So I've got now 13 pieces, and I have a 14th one that I'm going to make because someone came to me after seeing the other ones and said, please do my story as well. Uh, this was a young Hispanic woman who was raped by the priest who was supervising her quinceanera and he raped her repeatedly in the rectory uh, and basically destroyed her life and her faith so that will be my my i hope final piece in the series but we shall see maybe there will be more so victoria um are you working in any other projects now well as you know, I, I was enrolled in a writing class and yeah. have a series of about 25 personal essays that I've written over the course of a year, uh, many of which touch on the journey from being a good Catholic girl to becoming a pagan crone and a witch. Um, but they also cover a lot of other issues too, you know, family issues and the prevailing cultural issues. Um, I think that much as I love making art, probably the easiest and most powerful thing I can do is write. Um, and I can write very easily. Um, all I have to do is sit down at the keyboard and my thoughts come out my fingers onto the, onto the keyboard and up into the screen. But I'm not bragging about this because I have obvious deficits in other areas. I can't do arithmetic to save my soul. I really cannot. I just simply cannot. And numbers don't stay put for me at all. I'm just as likely to tell you that my birthday was in 1897 as it was 1944. Um, and I'm as likely to say, well, we have 37 things or we have 265 things. Those two numbers make no difference to me. So um, I think writing is the biggest thing that I will always be doing. Um, I think also I would like to extend the pedophilia series and maybe make a couple more Sheila and the Gig pieces. And then we'll just see what occurs to me next. Um, it would have to be something pretty powerful from the culture, I think, to speak to me. Um, yeah. but, but the one thing I, I do want to mention and not just in passing, Dean, is that these have been very hard years in which to be a pagan, particularly to be a crone. Ever since yeah. COVID surfaced, it's torn. The, the community has become so isolated. Um, I'm a very senior member of the community because I'm going to be 80 in January. And for those of us who fall into this age cohort, the idea of gatherings has been really dangerous for us over the past few years. And even now yeah. we've got a resurgence of COVID here in the Bay area. And even though most of us have been fully vaccinated and are extremely cautious in terms of masks and things, you know, last year, Dean, you came over with us for Samhain and how many people got COVID from that gathering, that small, careful gathering. We had, yeah, yeah, just a, yeah, you had a few. Yeah, three people out of something like eight people ended up with COVID from that gathering, and we were very, very careful. So that's been yeah. really, really hard, number one. And number two are the gender wars. And yeah. um, that has torn the community asunder, uh, particularly the women's section of the community to which I belong. 
Um, even now, I still have largely been members of groups that have done rituals mainly with only women. And suddenly there's this huge divide between those of us that wish to be inclusive and those who feel that only, God, I hate to say this phrase, but women born women who have bled are entitled to be in our space. Mm. There's even a tendency to spell woman, W-O-M-B-Y-N, which puts my teeth so much on edge I could scream. Um, So I have found that I can't really circle, as we say, often pagans will use that verb, I can't circle with people who hold views on gender that to me seem so unkind and non-inclusive. Um, I, I just don't want to do that. And yet some of those people are people who are people that I've had as friends for many, many years that are really good people, but they just are intransigent on this issue. And I have to be intransigent on the issue from the other perspective. I have people in my life whom I love very much, some family members actually, who have struggled with gender. And I want my home, my heart, my community to be an open place for them, not a closed place, not a place that says you can't play, you're not authentic enough. So right now, I have not done very much in terms of rituals or other meetings with pagans since this whole gender thing surfaced, which was about two years before COVID. Um, And as you know, it really tore apart our big pagan gathering of Pantheacon. And I don't think we can come back from that. I really don't think we can come back from that lifetime. And it it breaks my heart because this has been such a lonely time and it's really a lonely time for those those of us who are seniors. the the big gatherings of our lives were getting together for spiral dance or getting together for a pantheacon or getting together for the pagan alliance's big pagan festival and those things are just not taking place now and the small groups that are forming i i don't know them really because i've been back here with my doubly masked self being very very careful so i don't get sick so this yeah. makes me really less than sanguine about the future of the community here in the Bay Area. I mean, once I felt, and often people have said, the Bay Area is the Athens of American paganism. You know, this is where it's happening. And right now it feels like this is where it's not happening. And it makes me so sad. Well, yeah, I think especially in light of the fact that, you know, at one time, uh, you know, so many years ago, it was so... Uh, so robust and just to watch that deflate was was depressing i think well it 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 really is and um i i kind of don't know where to go from there um or do i help we build it and on many levels i suppose it's kind of not my job as an elder to do this you know i mean i have mobility issues i have economic issues um and I need to be really, really careful about not getting that evil virus. But yeah. I miss the community so badly, particularly as our big eight holidays roll around. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we need an influx of young people to come back in and kind of take charge and re, re, make a renewal, maybe kind of a, re, you know, maybe kind of a a new rebirth. Well, I hope so. But I, I feel that so many of them were lost in a different way during those COVID years. And also the the gender issues to young people that seem to be such an obsession for the older generation are just going to be kind of laughable, I think. Yeah. Um, you mean you mean your coven broke up because of gender? Yeah. So I yeah. don't I don't know. It it's just my heart is not in a good, in, in a happy place right now. My heart is in a really sad place right now. Yeah. I, I keep having hope. And as the wheel of the year turns, I just feel myself yearning toward celebration. You know, we have Mabon coming up and yeah. I, I want to celebrate the harvest with my sisters and brothers. And I don't know quite how yeah. to do that this year. And then I know that when Samhain comes around, 
some of my pagan friends will help. In fact, I hope you'll be part of it. Build another Dia de los Muertos altar. I'll and, be there. And, and do a Samhain ritual. Um, but it's hard. It's really yeah. hard. And uh, on the other hand, things that are, val- are valuable are valuable sometimes because they're hard. If it were so easy, what would be the point? Yeah. And it's it's paganism is easy in the Bay Area on some levels because we don't have people who want to fire us from our jobs when they find out we're pagans or take our babies away because we're pagans or divorces because we're pagans or kick us out of our houses because we're pagans. But on yeah. other levels, it's hard. It, it It's hard because we're all articulate in many different directions and we're fragmented and we've got technology up the wazoo that keeps us looking at our phones instead of holding hands and dancing in a circle and ah, it's just complicated it's complicated but it has to be worth it it has to yeah well i've loved talking to you victoria i'm going to go ahead and uh end it now and i want to thank you for being on the podcast i've really had a great time talking with you thank you it's good it's always good to talk to you too dean That was my conversation with journalist writer Victoria Slynn-Floor. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast, and I hope you return in the coming weeks to listen to more interviews with writers and fellow pagans about their lives and their writing. Until then, have a blessed week.